1: Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Mike and Anne Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst Team. Today, we're talking about Tesla becoming a trillion-dollar company, how iOS 14 has affected social media companies like Snap, Facebook, and Twitter, and we give our thoughts on WeWork's second attempt at life as a public company. So guys, it finally happened after all the haters, us included, well, me included, probably sometimes... Tesla finally managed to join the one trillion dollar market cap club, along with likes of Apple, Google, and Amazon. And as good as that is, and as much as people have been talking about it this week, the fact that really, really got me. Well, there's two facts that really got me. One was the fact that we've talked about Tesla. I think on the last three concurrent episodes, which obviously you know got got so much interest in it, pushed them across that that um, that benchmark. So, your thanks for that, Er. You're welcome for that, Elon. But um, I think the most amazing part about this story was the fact that it was a deal with none other than Hertz that finally. Put push the company over the line too. So Hertz ordered 100,000 cars from Tesla to be delivered by the end of next year. And this, you know, this, this, this news story seems to have been the, the final push over the line. Um, Guys, the biggest question I had from this wasn't really about Tesla hitting $1 trillion, but how on earth is Hertz, a company that just recently left bankruptcy, bankruptcy, how are they ordering such a massive amount of cars from Tesla?
2: They they own Tesla stock, so (laughs) the the share price boost pay for the cars themselves.
0: Um, Yeah, but also the real answer is is tax credits. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, because of the new um, house reconciliation spending bill, there's a 30% tax credit for qualified commercial electric vehicles. So Hertz essentially gets 30% off all of their vehicles. And then they also want to build out um, a big charging infrastructure, which they also will be able to claim back more than 30% of, so I think they're kind of taking the gamble that they'll be able to get a significant amount of money back and then kind of charge into the future with all these 100,000 electric vehicles.
2: I think it's very, very appropriate, like cherry on top of this Tesla story, you know, a $5 billion promise from a bankrupt company
1: yeah, is <laughs>
2: the, the one to take it to $1 trillion dollars,
1: and the fact that Hertz were were one of those meme companies of a few a uh, few months ago. It seems it seems only suitable that this is the the company that pushed Elon Musk over into the one trillion dollar club. Um, so I know these kind of comparisons are useless. or pretty much useless at this stage, but now Tesla is roughly 16 times the market value of Ford. Um, to, but to both of you guys, is is there any explanation that makes this okay? Like we've talked about Tesla and, you know, Rory mentioned it, its sexiness and its brand to whatever ratio, but, you know, does this in very, very real terms make sense that Tesla is so much more valued than Ford at the moment?
0: I think you kind of have to think like how much potential does each vehicle have? Like we were discussing this last week with the insurance um program that they're rolling out in Texas. It's that idea of for every actual car that they sell, like they're a technology company, how many add-ons can they get to that car that can then be turned into subscription revenue? Because the issue with car companies has always been cars are really expensive to make. They're a low margin business. And then you sell them one to someone and they won't be back for 10 years. I think Tesla is essentially trying to disrupt the industry by attaching all these new things onto cars that people are going to have to continue to pay for. And so I think they kind of have all these irons in the fire and all this potential down the line. And that has always been kind of something I talk about when it comes to Tesla, where Tesla has all of this potential and that excites investors a lot. But that all that potential is, is very much concentrated in the future. We're kind of hoping if all of these gambles pay out, like yeah. Tesla is going to be this 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 company that's worth this tremendous valuation. But so far, like, things look pretty good, the insur- like, with the insurance thing. And then I think like the driverless um, technology, I know that they're still several years away from that being perfected, but like that could introduce a whole another stream of um, revenue in terms of the ability to convert that into like, taxis. Or even I know Elon Musk speculated that um, Tesla drivers could effectively rent out their cars as taxis when they're not using them and allow them to you know drive around and pick up people and help them you know pay off the cost of their Tesla. So I think they kind of have all these little nuggets that they're hoping will pay off down the line. I think part of it is the branding. Part of it is Elon Musk. Part of it is investors being excited. But there, there definitely is more potential in it, I think, than, than someone like Ford or another car company.
2: Yeah. yeah, but just like to follow up on how much credit investors give them, I think Elon Musk promised full autonomy striving last year, was it? By twenty twenty? You know, and that's not gonna be around for I'd say a decade maybe.
1: So, I, feel like, I feel like I'm feel like i getting a bull and bear case here and it, it's really appropriate. <laughs> Listeners won't be able to see this, but Anne-Marie's wearing a, a jumper of Tesla red as well. So she's obviously <laughs> come prepared to big up Tesla in this podcast. Let's move on then. And getting on to some other stories, towards the end of last week, social co- media companies almost across the board took a massive hit after Snap Inc. showed us what, how one little iOS update can pretty much ruin everything. So in its quarter three earnings report, Snap recorded a slight miss on revenue and more worryingly perhaps pulled back its revenue forecasts for the current quarter with management citing changes to apple's ios and the way advertisers can target consumers with ads as the main reason this pulled other companies like facebook and twitter and google down as well and all of these have reported this week too which we'll get into in a few moments but mike i want to come to you first can we pull this right back to the very start and and kind of talk about what ios 14 is or was and and why it's frustrating so many of these companies
2: yeah um ios 14.5 i think actually Okay. So I think it was an add-on, but uh, okay. I'm not fully sure. Uh, but, but essentially it was a privacy update. So Apple have this thing. It's called ID, IDFA ID for advertisers. I'm pretty sure it stands for. You should probably okay. know that. <laughs> 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 but essentially with the iOS update, they decided to switch it up. So essentially what it was was that iPhone users were automatically opted in uh, and you know, had to manually opt out. Apple changed this to asking iPhone users, if they wanted to opt in or not. And uh, I think in May, uh, analytics came back that around 11% worldwide opted in when prompted and only 4% in the United States. So using kind of Facebook as the main example, just because like in pure dollars and cents, I think they're the ones who are going to suffer the most. Um, The secret ingredient to Facebook's advertising business is this like line of code called a pixel. Essentially what it does is kind of, track users across different websites and apps. And then once they're on Facebook's apps, they can then be targeted with advertisements. Yeah. And it was essentially like an advertiser's dream. This is what made Facebook so good is that they had all this information on its users. Its users came to Facebook's apps and spent two or three hours a day. So they had so much opportunity to target them with the right ad at the right time. So if you can think about that and then think 96% of this target market is kind of opted out of this tracking, and yeah. Facebook loses its secret sauce a bit. And this this goes for any kind of advertising platform that uses the same sort of tracking algorithms.
1: And and this is just, just so we're clear, this is only across you know Apple products, though, because this is an iOS update, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But obviously still a, a massive chunk of the market. So, you know, obviously... These companies, they thrive on advertising, Facebook in particular, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, I, I expect we see, to see massive hits. You know, Snapping showed us that they're going to get a massive hit. Facebook, Twitter have reported this week. Have, have we seen um, similar warnings from them?
2: Yeah, well, I think it isn't really, um, the full impact isn't really hitting Facebook yet. Uh, okay. So they had a slight miss on revenue. And I think they uh, guided down for revenue for Q4 but from kind of more anecdotal evidence, like even within my Wall Street, I know our CMO Rob is pulling his hair out since April, like <laughs> <laughs> cost of acquisition. Uh, Wall Street Journal did a did a survey and like the cost of acquisition for customers has gone way up tenfold yeah. in certain circumstances. So I think the fact that advertisers can't afford to kind of basically 10X their 10X their ad spend. They're going to look for alternatives and it mightn't be seen straight away because like people have relied on Facebook for so long that mm. they would just see an increase in customer, customer acquisition costs. But they wouldn't really know where to go. I think down the line, we're going to see a lot more effects. Um, Facebook and Snap have definitely been affected. It's actually funny. Twitter hasn't been affected. I think Twitter has lambasted for a while for showing a relevant ad. So that might be a testament to their Tracking or or
1: lack thereof. All that bad targeting has po- finally paid off for Twitter.
2: Yeah, but it even, it's <laughs> even it's even affected Google. You know, Google is the other side of iOS. Google owns maybe an even larger online ecosystem, and it said its YouTube revenues were re- YouTube revenues were affected as well. So it's, it's it's kind of scary to show how much kind of control Apple has over like what we see as the internet. Yeah, and like the the ecosystem it is built, and like the companies that have developed th- within these walls, it's constructed. So when it pulls a move like this, the kind of like the power it flexes. Hmm small but worrying.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of an offshoot of that argument over App Store charges as well. So many companies are, are dependent on, you know, the, the attacks are not dependent, but are affected by the tax that Apple effectively charges them in the App Store. And it even reminds me of of old conversations that used to be had about Facebook and, and people operating storefronts on the Facebook platform and how vulnerable they are on, on this one, I suppose, point of failure. Um But look, I don't think Facebook is going to stop advertising in the morning. I don't think Snap is going to stop advertising in the morning. Um, People, companies aren't going to stop advertising. So if they can't go to likes of Facebook and Snap, or if they don't want to spend as much as they were previously previously spending on these companies, what are the solutions now? Where are advertising dollars going, Mike?
2: Yeah, I I think in the short term, we're going to see kind of uh, ad spend be diversified quite a bit. Um, Like Facebook and Snap and these social media platforms are still going to retain... The absolute incredible amount of impressions and time spent from users and all the rest. I think Facebook had like almost three billion daily active users.
1: Yeah, it's insane. You know, like, like,
2: how could it not be? Yeah. How could it not be the biggest advertising in the world? But in the short term, I think it will like you'll see money go elsewhere. I think the trade desk indicated connected TV as one of the company's focal points moving forward. So Roku is a big player in this space. No there's smaller ad tech players like Magnite and Tremor International they share a focus there as well, yeah, Spotify could be a big benefactor as advertise you know like there's there's a lot there that not ignored per se, but like was deprioritized because things like Facebook were so efficient, and yeah. the fact that they're not as not not as efficient anymore kind of takes the glass off a bit, you know?
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. and I imagine there's a lot of kind of companies we're looking at at the moment that could, this could be a massive opportunity for them. You mentioned Roku there and you mentioned Spotify, but to, to kind of change the angle a bit then, Mike, you know, what does Apple get out of this? You know, they, they're they the ones who implemented this big change, have affected all of these companies, which are essentially so dependent on them. Um, is it is it simply just privacy? Do we buy that line that Apple are just, you know, increasing the privacy, increasing the customer experience?
2: Oh, you're coming around to my world now, James. With
1: your, <laughs> <laughs> your tinfoil hat. It's, it's, it's firmly in place on my head.
2: <laughs> like, I think Apple does have this kind of very legitimate straw man. We're helping our users. We're protecting privacy, yada, yada, yada. But like, was it three weeks after they... Uh, they released a new. Uh, they released a new ad slot on the App Store. Now Apple's advertising business is less than one percent of its total revenue. Yeah, but it's still a two two billion dollar advertising space. You know.
1: Yeah, and like I
2: think famously they never really bought into advertising. They were making too much money elsewhere, basically. But I think what's made Apple the biggest company in the world is that they've always found the next growth driver. Do you know, yeah. like it was the iPhone, then it was the iPad, wearables. I think AirPods alone are like one of the biggest companies in the world in revenue. Um, yeah. They place a lot of importance on services now. So maybe they're looking at ad dollars as a worthy pursuit for once, you know, um, yeah. and in making those companies that have basically grew up within its platform weaker It's going to make Apple's ad landscape a lot stronger.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to see if, if this does come true, if your conspiracy theory actually isn't so much conspiracy at all. I, I can't wait to see how Apple position this because they've for so long taken, you know, the, the higher ground and not being dragged down into this advertising game, the premium side. And, you know, I, I can't wait to see kind of how they position their their premium advertising if it does come to pass. Um, I want to move on from this story, but just while we're on the, the topic of social media companies, we saw earlier this week that the reported acquisition of Pinterest uh by PayPal fell flat. And is Pinterest a company that would equally suffer from these kind of iOS 14.5 changes?
0: Um, Yeah, like definitely it would suffer. I think the main difference is how users engage with Pinterest a little bit. Um, You and I talked about this last week when we were trying to figure out maybe what was the appeal of Pinterest to PayPal. And something I brought up was... Like Pinterest, in some ways, is the equivalent is the e commerce equivalent of like walking down the aisles of a store. Like you don't yeah. really know what you want, but you just kind of want to have a look. You want to see what's available. You know, maybe if you really like something, you'll you'll just buy it. You don't, you know, you won't think about you know if you have your space for it or where you're going to put it or, or that type of thing. And so, I think in that way, it allows Pinterest to kind of have rich on platform signals that they are not necessarily dependent upon. Um, data coming from outside of their own app in order to create kind of profiles for their users to help advertisers target them. So I think in that way, they might have a slight benefit – However, Pinterest has publicly stated, um, like basically every other social media company, that they will be affected by the iOS changes. Um, They said they expect varying degrees of impact for advertisers on audiences, measurement, reporting, and conversion campaigns. So I would expect to see them also take a knock in terms of advertisement revenue, but maybe it'll be slightly less than the likes of Facebook.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then just in terms of that, the rumors of that PayPal acquisition. You know, do you think now there was actually much there? Was it was it kind of blown up bigger than it should have been, or was it maybe that PayPal took a bit of a a step back considering the negative negative market reaction to the reports?
0: Um, I think PayPal is kind of maybe looking for a an edge, maybe against the likes of like Etsy. Yeah. Um, I think we're kind of seeing more and more people kind of want to engage with quality individual products over kind of mass-produced stuff that you might find on the likes of Amazon. And I think PayPal probably saw a potential there. I also think like something that – um, Mike kind of talked about was this idea that like Facebook was so good at collecting data on users and creating quality engagements and opportunities for small businesses to target really specific categories of people. And that has now been effectively eliminated. Um, I think then we have to redefine what the idea of a quality engagement for advertising is. And I think Pinterest has the potential, as do you know, like high quality media companies, for example, like the New York Times, like we can effectively determine like who the reader of the New York Times looks like, like what they will look like. And then you can go to an advertiser who would be interested in that demographic and effectively target them. Like that is probably the new equivalent of what targeting will be going forward. It's going to be less precise and less efficient, um, but it will probably place more power in the hands of the companies that will be hosting the advertising. And so I think in that way, it was definitely an opportunity for PayPal to kind of push more into the e-commerce space. Um, obviously, when the news broke, I think it probably just shook them a little bit. Um, yeah. I think because it was a little bit um, kind of unusual. I think it's it wasn't something that we were expecting. Um, Pinterest, while being an e-commerce platform, is also a social media, and I think people were kind of like, what is PayPal doing getting into social media? But I very much view PayPal as an e-commerce platform as much as a social media. So maybe it was just a perception issue of what people think of Pinterest as.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely one of the more interesting stories that's come across our desk in in recent times. Let's move on then. And about two years ago, so long before either of you guys were regulars on the Stock Club podcast, and I actually feel kind of like I'm cheating on Rory and Emmett by talking about this when they're not here, seeing as we spend so much airtime talking about it. But we spent almost every single episode feverish tracking the runaway dumpster fire. That was the planned WeWork IPO. So if you weren't tuned in or if you kind of missed all of this, if you were living on Mars or something, um, I'll give you a quick recap of the main points of, of WeWork's failed or, or aborted path to IPO. So the co-working company filed documents back in August of 2019 at an eye-watering valuation of about 47 Billion dollars. The company was fueled with money from Masayoshi Sun and SoftBank and their infamous vision fund. With Sun apparently investing four billion dollars into WeWork after a 12 minute tour of an office in New York and ultimately by the end of it committing billions to the venture and also spending quite a lot of money bailing them out too. And it it kind of you know, WeWork were, were teeing up and there was a few question marks around it, but once the world got hands on its S1 filing, it became clear how terrible this company was, not least thanks to a $2 billion loss in the year previous. That's $2 billion. The company was actually spending about $2 for every $1 it made. And the fact that CEO Adam Newman had liquidated hundreds of millions of dollars worth of shares before the IPO. Um, On the subject of Adam Newman, of course, he was uh, another kind of sticking point in this whole saga. So he was known for walking around barefoot in the office inside and out and apparently encouraging uh, WeWork employees to do the same. He reportedly had plans to become the president of the world and to live forever. Um, Most amazingly, however, I think from a business perspective, Newman had trademarked the prefix we, so we work and and any affiliated companies or businesses. And then he forced the company he owned, so we work, to buy the rights of that prefix off him for almost $6 million. So if that doesn't say a lot about him, I I don't really know uh, what does. I think he had uh, his eyes on other prizes at times. But look, that's just the main highlights of what happened. Ultimately, we know that the company ended up scrapping its IPO plans. It sold off parts of its business. It laid off thousands of workers. Newman eventually got ousted, although he got a $1.7 billion payout from SoftBank for his troubles. And, you know, the kind of the issue was put to bed for a while. It kind of fell under that that uh, that branch of like Tyrannos I'm thinking of, and, and to maybe a lesser degree Uber of these Big money burning companies coming to market with massive valuations and kind of burning, maybe burning us little guys who who are silly enough to invest in when they do come to market. But now, um, like like a, a, we all love a good resurrection story, and WeWork is back on the public markets again. This time at a much smaller valuation, thankfully, and it took a different route to market this time. Anne Marie, here we are two years later. What does WeWork look as like as a company now to you?
0: Well, some things have changed. Um, but maybe not enough things to change. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> few <laughs> tweaks. There's been a few tweaks, but um, maybe not enough. We still have a bit of a a bit of a cash issue, a bit of a, um, a loss issue. But it's still the same fundamental company in terms of they own a bunch, they don't own, they lease a bunch of buildings in major cities all across and they have co-working spaces. That has remained the same. Yeah. They got a new CEO, his name is Sandeep Mathrani. He was previously the CEO of General Growth Properties, which is an American commercial real estate company and is the second largest shopping mall operator in the United States.
1: And what's his opinion on shoes?
0: I believe he is (laughs) pro-shoe, so perfect. Um, But crucially, when he became CEO of GGP, it was like right on, um the back of the company coming out of um a declaration of bankruptcy so he is used to kind of helping these companies rebuild okay and, he is, and he's very experienced in real estate so that is a good thing like he does look like the perfect man for the job and there was a significant change in valuation so in 2019 they were worth about 47 billion and today they're worth about 9 billion so we did a bit of a steep drop bit of a haircut yeah um And the financial picture is a little bit mixed. Obviously they have made a lot of adjustments, but then on top of that, they get hit with COVID. So it's placed them in very kind of, um, changing circumstances, which makes it kind of difficult to, um, predict the growth that the company is going to experience and how successful they're going to be. So just a little bit on that from 2019 to 2020 revenue was pretty much flat at $3.2 billion. So that Mm. was great. Even with COVID revenue was flat. Um, However, they lost 3.5 billion in 2019, and they lost 3.2 billion in 2020. Okay, so <laughs> Pro- a little bit of an improvement.
1: Progress, progress.
0: A little I think bit. It's
2: Three billion so far in 2021.
0: <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. it is. Um, so. They closed a number of locations. So at one point they had 850 locations. They're now down to 763. Um, They decreased selling general and administrative expenses by $1.1 billion in 2020. Um, They decreased operating expenses by $400 million. Um, They had a $1.6 billion improvement to free cash flow, and they terminated a lot of leases that essentially allowed them to Uh, preemptively save $4 billion that they would have had to pay out in the future. So that's good. We're doing restructuring. However, in Q1 of 2021, thanks to the pandemic, in one quarter alone, the company lost $2.1 billion, um, also because they had to settle a lawsuit with former CEO Adam Newman, Um, Restructuring-related costs swelled from $56 million in Q1 of 2020 to $494 million in a single quarter. That's pretty bad. Yeah. And the company's revenue fell more than 50%. It was 1.1 billion in Q1 of 2020. It's now 598 million in 2021 and it shed more than 200,000 customers over the course of the year. So, not great. <laughs> it's not great. But Q2 2021, very minor signs of life that the company is is screaming from the rooftops. So, Occupancy obviously dropped because people weren't interested in going into WeWorks during the pandemic. Yeah. It dropped from 80% at the beginning of 2020 to 48% Q1 2021. It went up 4% to 52% in Q2 of 2021. So just a little bit, a little bit of improvement but still lost $923 million in the second quarter of 2021, bringing up the total loss for 2021 so far to just under $3 billion.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, the next question I was going to ask was, uh, do they look like a good investment right now? But I think you might have already answered that. But in general, you know, Personally, I always liked the idea of WeWork. I always thought it had a place. And I think, you know, it might be a bit early to call this a post-pandemic world. But in a a nearly post-pandemic world that we're living in now, the, the idea of shared offices makes a lot more sense to me. What's your perspective on that? Do you think this is a growing industry? And if not WeWork, who is the company or are there companies out there that can take advantage of it?
0: Yeah, I think I don't think you can exactly count WeWork out, but like I wouldn't be putting money near it. For several quarters, we got to kind of see as we emerge from the pandemic, we need to kind of see what happens here. But the main difference in terms of the business model from pre pandemic to post pandemic is yeah. the enterprise membership percentage that WeWork sees. So, um, the traditional kind of idea of WeWork that I think people have is that like a lot of people who work there are freelancers and they're just one person and they pay for their membership themselves. But over time, a lot of companies have actually been buying bulk memberships um, to help facilitate people that maybe don't live um, in the same city that the main office is in, or maybe it's like a sign-on perk. A lot of I know a lot of companies that offer work from home will also say, oh, we'll give you a stipend to get a WeWork membership or something like that. Yeah. And WeWork defines an enterprise client as someone who has 500 employees or more. And then they often sell these in like a group. So you could have an enterprise company that might buy 50 memberships and then they calculate we work will calculate out a percentage of how many enterprise customers um, buy memberships in comparison to like just individual memberships that they sell. And in 2020, 49% of WeWork's memberships were enterprise customers. That was up from 43% in 2019 and up from 38% in 2018. And it, incrementally increased to 51% of total memberships in Q2 of 2021. And these enterprise membership percentages basically move in line with revenue because mm. 99% of WeWork's revenue is memberships. So um, if they sell 49% enterprise memberships, that means enterprise mem- memberships make up 49% of revenue. Okay, So they are making moves there and kind of anecdotally, Um, TikTok like is, is expanding their European headquarters here in Dublin. And I think like half their staff is working out of the WeWork here. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so I think because more and more people want to work from home, but maybe want to have the option to go into an office rather than, than TikTok having to go and, you know, find an office rented out and furnish it. They're just saying, right, we'll just offer WeWork, um, access to some of our staff. That being said, WeWork has not really considered the idea That the work-from-home movement means that people might just leave cities and, like, buy a house and then build an at-home office. Um, Because a lot of WeWork's property is concentrated in cities. And most cities in the U.S. either saw their population growth significantly decline during 2020 or major cities like New York and Boston actually saw their population decline altogether. Okay. and so it's the idea of like if people are living in the suburbs and there's not a we work close to them, they're probably not gonna go and they're just gonna get a bigger house and work from home. And this is a reality that WeWork is in no way engaging with. Mathrani, the new CEO, he said, quote, those who are uberly engaged with their company want to go to the office two thirds of the time at least. He added, those who are least engaged are very comfortable working from home. And I think that is completely untrue. People work from home for a number of reasons. Mm. That probably doesn't involve their commitment to their job. You know, like people who have kids probably want to be home. So that they can go pick them up from school and stuff like that um yeah and so it's they just kind of have this blind spot where we're kind of like we don't know what the work from home future is going to look like and it might not include we work it might just include more and more people moving away from cities so that they can do this on their own
1: yeah absolutely.
2: are you accusing the WeWork ceo of bending the truth emory
0: yes <laughs> but this is maybe in like the least worst way that has ever happened in a WeWork story so i think it's
1: okay <laughs> yeah like it, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty low bar but uh yeah. <laughs> but
2: what you said is that like if it's looking at enterprise clients now instead of the freelancers it's just turned into a commercial leaser more than anything yeah it sold us all a lie with people in bare feet and cucumber water and all the rest but like it's not it's not anywhere near what the company ever said it would be yeah and i think like it the name even itself has such connotations. Like I'd say you should nearly change the name because it's what it is. I think there's the company Regis or Rebus it's competitor in America is like three times the size of it or something.
1: Yeah. You know? After spending so much money to buy the name, though, Mike, they might be kind of <laughs> slow, slow to change it.
2: <laughs> there would be royalties going back to Adam Newman,
1: Sunk cost fallacy and all that. Well, let's move on. This probably won't be the last time we ever talk about WeWork, WeWork, but let's talk about some of the things going on in My Wall Street at the moment. So Anne-Marie, last week you mentioned you just added a new stock to My Wall Street shortlist. And right now at the time of recording, that pick is up almost 10% already. So um, should we just tell Rory not to come back from Portugal?
0: No, I want Rory to come back because the process of picking stocks for the app is like going through the five stages of grief. Like you have to get to the breaking point of almost being like, this is a terrible company. I can never go anywhere. And then you have like a moment of clarity where you're like, no, it's fine. I'm just panicking. And you have to put in all this work. It's actually a terrible process. Like I, he can do it. That's, he can pick the stocks (laughs) and I'll just do the first looks. That's fine.
1: Well, there you go, Rory. I hope you're listening. That's a, that's a nice, uh, Uh, promotion for you there. We also had some great, um, more great content in my Wall Street app too, including two brand new first looks, one covering Progeny, uh, a company, Mike, you pitched on the podcast not so long ago and Blend Labs as well as a new Stock of the Month coming on Monday, November 1st. Remember, you can check out all of this now by signing up to my Wall Street app and starting your free trial. You'll find a note or a link for that in the notes for today's show. Um, Let's move on, guys. And we've just got a quick question in Mailbag this week. Um, So we're going to take an earnings-themed question and you know, seeing as we're in the middle of earnings season right now, Mike, how much attention should we as investors pay to things like forecasts and guidance, especially this earnings season when there seems to be so much uncertainty around things like iOS 14, as we talked about, but also global supply chains? Um, you know, there seems the pandemic, there seems to be a myriad of things that people are are kind of citing that make forecasting difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean, we always say the market is a forward looking vehicle. Like, nowhere is this more prevalent than when a company has a good earnings report but gives poor guidance. Yeah. We don't care what you did half as much as we care what you're going to do. I think we saw it with Snap, it didn't miss on revenue that much, but the guidance sent people running for the hills. I think it dropped over 20% in one day, you know? Um, So, I think guidance is great because. Guidance is great when it's good, if that makes sense, because the company is confident, they have recurring revenues, they basically know how the next, well, it's not usually three months because they're halfway through the quarter when they actually do the earnings report. But they basically know pretty much how a quarter is going to go. Yeah, And they'll tell you all about it if it's going well. Um, I think you have to be slightly wary when a company sets guidance just because they're setting the goalposts for themselves. They're going to make it easy. They're going to They're going to set guidance, they're going to beat guidance, and they're all going to give themselves a big pat on the back. Um, If you are interested, I would look at analysts' expectations, which are kind of built around guidance, and they'll usually be slightly more accurate than the company's guidance themselves. But again, we always talk about this. An earnings report is three months if you're holding stock for 10 years. I would would only ever put too much importance on guidance if it's a bit of a disaster, if they're like, (laughs) we're going to have a rough three months, probably follow on to a rough year. Then I would pay attention, figure out why they're saying that, what are the kind of external factors or if it's internal factors. Yeah. But yeah, and I, I do think it's a valuable part of the earnings report just because It'll give you a general sense of where the company is going.
1: Yeah, it's kind of it sounds to me kind of like a temperature check of of you know how management are feeling, how things are going. As you said, a lot of guidance forecasts are given in the middle of the quarter. The quarter they might be guiding for, so it kind of gives you a sense where the company right might be right now. Um, surely, if a company misses its own forecast or guidance massively, though, would that kind of be a bit of a warning sign to you that maybe management isn't as certain of of things as they should be?
2: Yeah, well, I think. Um, I think it's poor planning and then obviously there's an external factor that came into play. So I think with Snapchat, they underestimated the effects of iOS 14.5 significantly. And that's why we saw most of them won't let poor, uh, like a miss on guidance get that far. A lot Mm. of them will come out before an earnings report and be like, look, it's not going to be good. we're, We're lowering our Q3 guidance or whatever it is. So I think you would look at management... To give you like the defined path for the company. And when that gets a bit fuzzy, it's maybe time to reconsider. Do you know that kind of way?
1: Okay. Okay, interesting. Thanks for that. Um, we're running way over time today, so let's move on quickly. And we've got an elevator pitch, as always, to finish out today's show. Um, so for the season that's in it, <laughs> I want you both to pitch me your Halloween-themed stock this week. Um, so I'm giving you guys a lot of latitude with this. Um, I probably should warn listeners that, I well, I don't know, you can, you can tell them yourselves, but I don't know if these are necessarily good stocks you're pitching. Halloween theme was the was the um was the brief. So uh let's just see how this goes and um we will probably never do this again. andre <laughs> do you want to go first? Mike, you were talking for a while there, so Henry, do you want to go first with your Halloween themed stock?
0: Yes. So my Halloween themed stock is Tootsie Roll. Have you guys ever had a Tootsie roll?
1: I've never had a Tootsie roll.
0: They're terrible so I wouldn't recommend them. They are a chocolate flavored taffy. They have been around forever. The company is 125 years old. And they make Tootsie Rolls, and they make Tootsie Roll Pops, which are slightly better, where they put the taffy at the center of a lollipop, and they had very famous advertisements in the 50s of how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. <laughs> but the interesting thing, first off, the interesting there are two interesting facts about Tootsie Roll, which I think should make it a questionable investment. Number one, in 1935, the company was in serious difficulty, and Tootsie Roll's principal supplier of paper boxes acquired them because they, did, they didn't They did think that the paper box company would survive if Tootsie Roll went out of business. Whoa. So they're owned by a paper company at one point. And then number two is the recipe for the Tootsie Roll taffy includes a small portion of the taffy from the day previously, right? So in theory, if you were to buy a Tootsie Roll today, it has a tiny amount of Tootsie Roll from 1896 in it. What? Yeah. <laughs> So it's not great. Also, the stock has only gone up 4.86% in the last five years. So it's not great all around. But you should try a Tootsie Roll. They're terrible.
1: I when you, when you first said that, like I knew there were some sort of like sweeter candy. And I thought it was going to be that it was what you got every Halloween when you went out trick-or-treating. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that pitch.
0: If you got tootsie rolls from a house where you were trick or treating in America, it was not a good trick or treating house. Okay. Like if your friend came back from a house and was like, "They gave me tootsie rolls," you would skip the house. It's not worth going to.
1: <laughs> okay, I, no, I buy it. That, that's a good one, Mike. What about you?
2: Can I say we work?
1: It's like a
2: scary, <laughs> dark pit where money goes to die.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, lots of uh, no. lots of bare, uncovered feet as well.
2: <laughs> um, I picked uh, Party City. The ticker symbol is P-R-T-Y, so you know it's a good time. Yeah, um, It's a party supplies company, and if any of our listeners are from New York, you'll know all about it. it. This is weird thing that happens near the end of September, where every year these Halloween pop-up shops just appear around the city like magic. And I think it's like coordinated, so they all, they all happen on the same day. <laughs> um, so I was delighted to find out this is actually a public company. And it's just one of the bizarre things that happens. I, I don't know if it goes beyond New York, but it is a very strange sight yeah I I, just want to ensure as well that I do not think it's a good business and more than likely has lost all of its business tatsy already but there's a bit of nostalgia there
1: (laughs) I was just wanted to say if that you actually want to see a real horror story um, just have a look at its stock it's a historical stock price chart there um, it might give you a bit of a scare so that is (laughs) it for today's show remember if you have any questions you'd like us to answer elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle maybe even better ones than a Halloween themed elevator pitch I'd like you to beat that and uh, make sure to get in touch you can find us on Twitter that's at mywallstreethq you can find us on TikTok that's at mywallstreet or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com that's p-o-d at mywallstreet.com if you're enjoying the show make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on and um, the three of us here today thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next week.